Welcome, everyone, to our Every Other Thursday podcast, where we cover the wide world of food service and hospitality. Our hosts cover both the relevant news of the moment and we invite key industry experts in for conversations that are informative, enlightening, and entertaining. Every Other Thursday is an approximately 40 to 50 minute conversation presented bi weekly by Tabletop Journal. Now, here's your host of Every Other Thursday, Dave Turner. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Every Other Thursday, our bi-weekly podcast covering all the worlds in restaurant and hospitality. This is episode, by the way, number 36 of Every Other Thursday, and it's being recorded April 1st, 2021. I'm Dave. I'm your host here at Every Other Thursday, and like always, I'm here with Jay Alley and Greg Kiris there, my co-host and colleagues. Hey, gentlemen, it's April 1st. What's going on? Uh, any pranks or anything coming your way? I won the lottery. It's a, it's a special bir- uh, day for me because it's my daughter Eden's birthday. Happy birthday, Happy Eden. Happy birthday. Hey, happy birthday, Eden. It's a special day for our listeners, too, because we've got the media giant joining us today, Chicago, Steve Delinsky. Steve has been recently quoted as being the linchpin in Chicago food media by Eater Magazine, and he was with 17 years with ABC7, the local uh, ABC affiliate in Chicago. Chicago, by the way, folks, is the third largest restaurant town in the uh, U.S. restaurant market. But in addition to being on Chicago TV, he covered the local restaurant scene with written books. He's been a consultant. He's done just about everything. And by the way, a winner of 13 James Beard Awards and has hosted his own podcast with noted chef Rick Bayless. And that's just a little bit of what Steve Delinsky's done. And he's got a lot more going on now. He's he's off to brave new pastures, and we want to talk to him about that. So we have to really be on our A-game today, guys, with Steve Delinsky. But before we bring Steve on, we want to do our business. And this week's episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by Tabletop Journal. Tabletop Journal is where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places all in the world of hospitality tabletop. And so now with all that business out of the way, let's get this thing going and welcome, give a great big warm welcome every other Thursday. Welcome to Chicago's Steve Delinsky. We have a special guest this morning, Steve Delinsky, a media expert. He's going to be very helpful to us. You know, it's no surprise that the restaurant industry, the food service industry in general has been slammed by the pandemic and chefs and operators are looking for every possible trick up their sleeve they can can find to improve their businesses. And one area that's uh, receiving more and more attention is media. And Steve just happens to be a media expert par excellence. We're very proud to have him on, on the podcast. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Steve to tell us a little bit about himself and his his career and how he got here. Thanks, Greg. Great to be here, gentlemen. Um, It's an honor. And I'm just a a kid from a small town in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Grew up in a kosher home. We were a good hour or so north of Minneapolis. I ended up moving to Minneapolis as a teenager. But I, I always take those childhood memories of sort of eating the the brown, mono textured, monochromatic food of a 1970s childhood in Minnesota with me today as a food reporter. And I'm still as a food reporter, gosh, 30 years in. I have kind of a strange route in the media business, a very difficult, a weird path. By no means is it typical. And I started off just studying broadcast journalism at University of Wisconsin in Madison. 
wanted to be uh, Brent Musburger, wanted to be uh, Chris Berman on ESPN, thought sports was going to be my thing. I interned in, in Minneapolis at TV stations. I interned in Madison at TV stations, <clears throat> put together a resume tape, sent the tape out all over the country. In television, very few sports jobs open up. And so I changed my cover letter to say, I'll do news or sports. Got a job as the Escanaba Bureau reporter in Upper Michigan for the TV station in Marquette, Michigan, which is where they get about 300 inches of snow a year, yeah, right on the, the banks of uh, Lake Superior. But I covered like a three-county area on the top of Lake Michigan for about a year, learning the business, learning the trade, learning how to be an assignment editor and a producer and a shooter and an editor and a reporter and doing live shots. And then I got a job in the Quad Cities in Davenport, Iowa, and then Rock Island, Illinois. Same thing, live reporting every day, coming up with stories, being a story editor, being a reporter. And then I came to Chicago in 92 as a general assignment news reporter for Chicagoland Television, CLTV. That was uh, the Chicago Tribune's 24-hour news channel, like a local CNN. You know, I like the job. I like the reporting part of it. I like the live shots and kind of the turning stories around quickly. I didn't like the subject matter so much. I was always interested in food as a hobby. And so, you know, it's a little depressing covering fires and shootings every day in, in a city like Chicago. But Chicago, in the, in the early 90s, had this sort of burgeoning food scene. Charlie Trotter was the greatest chef in the country, certainly but in, in, the greatest in Chicago by a, a long stretch. And so I was drawn to food and the, the ethnic food, the immigrant food, the strip malls. The, what are the stories behind those places? And started trying to report as a feature reporter more than news reporter. And then lo and behold, one of those right place, right time situations at CLTV in 95, they were, they were relaunching, the Tribune newspaper was relaunching the food section. And they were going to look for a, somebody at the cable news channel to create a weekly TV version of their revamped food section. And so I raised my hand. I said, I really want to work on this. I love food. I love cooking. And so my job became executive producer of The Good Eating Show, where my task was to create a weekly half-hour version of the Chicago Tribune's food section. And since there are no reruns in television, in, in newspaper, we had no reruns on our show. So we did 52 shows a year for eight years. And again, right place, right time, the host of the show was a weather guy we had, quit after the first year, and I became the host and the producer of this show which went on to win six James Beard Awards for Best Local Cooking Show in the country. And I, I led to freelance. I started pitching myself as a food reporter to public radio in Chicago, writing for local magazines, local independent newspapers, what, you have, what have you. And food reporting became my beat. And I sort of carved out this beat. When the show got canceled in 03, I pitched myself as a food reporter to the local affiliates in Chicago. Both NBC and ABC offered me a job. I went to ABC because they're the number one affiliate here in the market. So that was kind of my path to becoming a full-time food reporter. I did that for 17 years, right up until a couple months ago. That's amazing. I, I love stories like that. You know, Steve, stories there that are almost seem like serendipity, the way people's careers come together, the, the turns they take. And I, I was going to ask you, one of the questions I had leading up to this was, how does somebody be, from a journalism background as a badger at the University of Wisconsin end up in Chicago? But you, you've tied it all together. And But I'm, I, the twists and turns, the Quad Cities thing and all that, I, I just, that's great. Well, I think it's, you know, at first, it's hard work. You put up with a lot of nonsense. 
you put up with a lot of crazy. I mean, I remember having to turn down party invitations and, and Christmas Eve invitations to go to people's houses because I was covering a story. And I thought, where is yeah. this getting me? Where, you know, is this getting me ahead? And, you know, it was just teaching me about a work ethic. It was teaching me about seeing the story through. It was teaching me all these little things that I didn't really realize at the time. And so when someone says, oh, how did you become a food reporter? I want to be a food reporter. I like to eat. I can, sure. I can report about it. I could do that job. Well, no, you couldn't. I mean, I spent 25 years getting to the point where I could pitch myself competently as a food reporter to a local affiliate. And not only that, but the thing that happened during the pandemic was it taught me that, you know, I can fall back on those skills I learned in Escanaba, Michigan and Davenport, Iowa, where I was shooting my own stories and editing my own stories. Because once the pandemic hit, ABC wasn't giving me a cameraman anymore. ABC wasn't letting me come into the studio to edit with an editor anymore. So I literally became a one-man band again, shooting everything. I bought new equipment. I upgraded my camera package, bought lights, microphones, uh, edited on my Mac at home. I upgraded my computer. So I, you know, I proved to myself, hey, I can do that. I've done this before. I can do it again. And it was just hilarious seeing people saying, oh, I can do that job. I'm like, you know, good luck. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said for grinding. It's, the, it's, it's, it's also the grind of like, you know, I spent a long time learning about food. And so that became my beat, you know, whether it was painting on canvas or, or creating or, mm -hmm. or building canoes or what have you, learning about food, understanding food and cooking and terminology became my beat. And so, you know, it's, it's rare to find someone, I think, who has that beat plus the TV sort of production so that, experience. So that's a good, a good segue, Steve, to to what does this all mean for, you know, for, for chefs and, and restaurateurs and other operators? I mean, it's, it sounds daunting, but, you know, media seems to be so important now for, for brand and for promotion. I guess, do we start in this conversation looking small or big? I mean, what does media mean to a restaurant or a restaurant group? Because I know you've been involved with print and podcasts and TV. I, I think there's a couple of things. First of all, the big picture is there are, there are really two types of media. There's earned media, which is free, and there's paid media, which is like a pay-to-play, advertorial, sponsored posts, anything that you're, you're actually paying to get the coverage. So let's, let's start with earned media, which is my background. I've spent 30 years covering stories where I would you know, have a budget from my station to go out and eat and try things. And if I found something interesting, a uh, uh, Iraqi rice dish or a Russian dumpling, and I wanted to do a story about it and sort of the how-to behind the scenes, I call the place, I set up a time, I go back with my camera, I shoot a story, interview the person, come back, edit it, write it, produce it, put a package together, and then I send it off to my TV station, and then they broadcast it on their rails, and their rails being their distribution model, which is over-the-air free broadcast television, as well as their digital website. It has a lot of eyeballs. I mean, the number one station in the third largest market in the country, you're going to get a lot of eyeballs. And I would hear from the next day from people, oh my God, we got so many new people. We were slammed. You know, thanks for the coverage. It cost them, you know, what did it cost them? An hour and a half of their time and a couple of dishes that they had to create for the TV segment. Now, those kinds of earned media opportunities are going away. You know, in the, in the past, Restaurants would hire publicists, PR firms, in-house marketing departments, and they would do all this outreach and reach out to media, television, radio, podcasts, print, what have you, and try to get some coverage for their client. And they would take a retainer every month you know, for their time in doing this pitching. 
But you know, at the end of the day, they have a great list of people they can call on to pitch stories. And so I was always telling my clients, because I do media training as well, you know, you should really be compiling a list of these people in your markets. You know, who are the executive producers? Who are the segment producers? Who are the reporters that would cover stories about you? You should be collecting that yourself and pitching yourself. A lot of people don't want to do that. They're too busy, but it's a way to save some money. Now, the problem is the earned free media is going away. So case in point, me, I left my job after 17 years. I'm 99.99% sure ABC7 is not going to replace me. I mean, I was a pretty efficient reporter. I did the jobs of four people. So they're probably not going to have a food reporter at this station anymore. And interestingly enough, and coincidentally, a month before I announced I was leaving, the longtime food critic at the Chicago Tribune, Phil Vitell, retired after 31 years. The Tribune currently does not have a full-time restaurant critic in the, you know, in the third largest market in the country. So there's a lot of media that's sort of disappearing, going away, getting taking buyouts, what have you, or starting their own media companies, like I am. So you're having fewer opportunities. That leads to digital. Uh, that leads to paid media. So now you're looking at influencers, which is a term I hate because these are kids, typically kids, with Instagram accounts, and they're doing sponsored posts. And so whenever you see something from one of these folks where they say, oh my God, I just have the great new sushi box from X sushi place, and it's 1995, and it's available Tuesday through Thursday, at the end of that post, they have to have a hashtag. This is FTC regulated now. They have to have a hashtag that says ad, or sponsored or partnership, they have to disclose that they're getting paid or they're getting a free meal in exchange for posting this on their media. Now, some restaurateurs, some folks in the food service industry don't like having that connection. The only way they're getting this coverage, in a sense, is by someone or by paying someone. You know, it's a lot less expensive than buying a commercial on a TV station, though, right? But it's a lot fewer eyeballs at the same time. So people like me are now looking at branded partnership, branded sponsorship opportunities because we have a built-in audience. I've got 17 years at ABC7. I've got 25 years in the Chicago market. And so now certain brands are approaching me and saying, could we do a partnership with you? As long as it's part of your brand, does it make sense? You know, we could do something. And I just did my first one. This is a very, it's all brave new world for me. But I did partner with a company called Mercato. They're sort of focused on partnering and promoting local grocers, local independent grocers. And so what I've been doing for the last 17 years is promoting local independent restaurants and markets. So in that case, it makes sense. If someone was pitching me, I don't know, a, a new ice cube tray or a new refrigerator, I probably wouldn't do that. It wouldn't make sense for my brand. But I look at what aligns with my brand as a food reporter, and then I decide, you know, is it worth my time? Will it look good on me? Will it look good on the client? Will it look good on the brand? You know, it's got to be a win-win for both of us. And so this is where media now is sort of poised to look at, like, how do we partner the right way? How do we make it authentic? How do we make sure we, we disclose it? We have to be upfront and we have to be out front with it that this is a partnership and there's a paid situation here. Because I just feel like a lot of the earned media, the free media is drawing up in a lot of cities. Yeah, I mean, I, the question I would have is, and, and you've had a long time to, to obviously think about this, but for people that are going to do the partnering, it's hard to figure out who exactly who your brand is. You have to you have to really understand who your brand is first of all before you can decide who are going to be potentially, at least anyway, good partners. I would suspect. Well, like here's one example. So you talk about food service. What about pizza ovens, right? So Pizza Master is a brand I've seen around the country now. It's an electric oven. 
not to get too inside baseball here, but one of the things I do is, you know, I, I wear a pizza hat. And so I've got, I started a pizza tour business a couple of years ago here in Chicago, pizzacityusa.com. I've got a book that came out called Pizza City USA a couple of years ago. Second book coming out this fall, The Ultimate Chicago Pizza Guide. And I also have a podcast called Pizza City. So I have seen these pizza ovens around the country and I can see that there's potential for an oven company, for example, to be aligned with a podcast or to be aligned with an author or with a pizza brand. There's got to be some way that these work together. So like one of the things I just realized, you know, as a pizza podcaster, we need sponsorships to keep the lights on. And so I don't have a sales department. I don't have a marketing department. I mean, you're looking at it. You're, you're, this is it. So I do outreach now. We just had Baccio Cheese as a sponsor for six months. I just signed up Fontanini Brand Sausage as a sponsor for the next six months. That makes sense. That's a perfect brand alignment with a pizza podcast when most of my listeners are either, you know, they're, they're hobbyists or they're independent pizzerias. So it makes a lot of sense in that case. So I think the brand has to think about who is my audience? Who would be a potential buyer of my product or consumer? And then what are the brands out there that fit into that silo that makes sense? The Fontina brand's a great product. I've had that at a couple of different food shows, and boy, I'll tell you, it's some scary yeah. food stuff. Uh, and pizza as a category is just still still exploding. I mean, pandemic aside, pizza is still growing, right? So you're saying Steve's not involved in a pie in the sky deal. This is the real thing here with this pizza stuff. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. This is the slice life for sure. There's a lot of opportunity in this in this industry. I, I've seen it grow exponentially. One large Chicago-based pizza company is up 200 percent year over year right now, but a lot of the independents are up 30, 40 percent because. It just it's it's pandemic proof, right? It's it's affordable. You can feed a family. It's familiar. It, it, it checks all the good. boxes. <laughs> you can be vegetarian. You can be a carnivore. There's no bad pizza. Just degrees of excellence. So I I know that uh, you know we, it's it's different for everybody. One size does not fit all. But what kind of investment are we looking at? Is it massive in terms of money? in terms of real dollars or percentage or and time what does it take or do they just look towards you as a, as an expert to just hey just do this for us what are the mechanics so you know i think as the person who's doing the outreach and asking for partnerships first i have to create a deck a powerpoint of 10 pages explaining who i am what's my background what's my sort of street credibility and authority uh, why am I someone in the industry, you know, that's notable or trustworthy? What is my listenership? What is my viewership? Who are those people? What's the demographics? This is the one of the things in the new age of media is the the amount of data that's out there. So when I do my partnerships with these other brands I just mentioned, that Mercato, I have to give them a report every week of my Instagram, my Facebook, LinkedIn, personal website interactions, impressions, reach. You can get all that data now from your social media accounts. And so that's what they want to see. Who's, how many people? Where are they coming from? What are the, what's the interaction, the engagement like? How many comments are you getting on your posts? So this is why a lot of the influencers have a lot of influence because they get a lot of reach right now. Anyway, in this deck, I'm putting this information together for them. And then they have to just look at the material and say, is this something we want to be a part of? A lot of times it's just, it's a, it's a gut sort of a commodity buy for them. Like, listen, Fontanini, 
what they're spending on my sponsorship is a rounding error, I think, for a company that large that's owned by Hormel. I'm not asking for half a million dollars. You know, we're talking about thousands of dollars. Is your is your target, Steve? Is is it suppliers to the pizza business, or would it be the operators themselves? Probably suppliers. Yep, because you want my listeners are pizzerias and independent pizza shops and pizza hobbyists trying to build a pizza business. The advertiser, the sponsor, should be all the suppliers of that industry. Ovens. I had uni ovens for a while. Baccio cheese, Fontanini sausage. I'd love to have a tomato sauce. I'd love to have a flour company. So think about all the suppliers that would be supplying those. We're, we're, yeah, that fits right in with us. We're, our DNA is tabletop products, dinnerware, uh, servingware, cookware that's served at the table, and so that 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 seems to fit uh, perfectly with uh, with our legacy audience. I think pizza has has tremendous opportunity to expand even beyond where it. I mean, it, it's great now, obviously, and people can pick it up and eat. But I think that there's other opportunities too with pizza, whether it be in the serving of it, the styles of pizza, whatever. And, and I don't, I don't, I'm not the expert, Steve. You are, but uh, where do you see pizza, for instance, as a category going? Do you see it changing or or staying more of that more casual food? Do you see ever see it going upscale at all? More than it is? I do. I think, you know, that's, I haven't given a lot of thought to this, but I do think the next, the next step could be more upscale because pizza is just always considered as such a casual delivery type food experience. But I think that people are going to get tired of that. And I think they want to have something else. And as they make a little bit more money or a little, little more disposable income, they still like the idea of pizza because it checks all the boxes, but why not make it more, more of a special occasion kind of an experience. Why not sell the pizza with a good glass of wine too with it? And I see, and I see a lot of chefs now. And this was one example in Chicago where Michelin-starred chefs are pivoting to go into pizza because they see that there's a growth opportunity there. We had a uh, guest uh, last year, Rainer uh, Zengreba, and he was once the head of culinary for all of Marriott's luxury brands. And he's gone out now and into the industry and is a, a, with his own company and uh, consulting. And I asked him about fine dining. You know, we, we've always heard that, the, you know, fine dining is dead, or at least we've been hearing that for 50, 60 years. And for those of us old enough to know what's going on for the last 50 or 60 years. And anyways, Rainer defines fine dining as any dining where you're using really superlative ingredients. They're treated well. And so I, there's no, in my mind, and I guess Rainer's, there's no fine pizza fit, can fit very well into fine dining if you do that. Yeah. But, but, but fine dining also implies sitting in a room without windows for quite a long time. And so I think in the new era, you're going to, you're are going to find, I know there's been, they've been threatening for years. Oh, fine dining is dead. I think because of this concern now of sitting indoors for long periods of time that you might see this change for once and for all. Yeah, less churchy. You were talking about what you do is, is probably really more important to the, the people who sell the ovens or sell the ingredients. And re- regarding pizza, and this is interesting because I've, I've eaten too much of it in my lifetime, but to really, in my mind, how much can you do to it? It's a pizza. I just wonder if the ingredients that you use isn't the overwhelming factor on how good the pizza can be. And so the best cheeses, the best meats, the the best doughs in those mixtures. So I would think someone selling a super high quality product that's an ingredient to be used in that would be somebody who'd want to talk to you. 
I don't know what else you can do to a pizza. You know, I mean, you, if you, but if you put in the best on it, I mean, some of the best pizzas I've ever eaten were in some of the small places. And you start to see some of the stuff that they're using, the cans and stuff. And all of a sudden you realize, hey, I've never heard of that about that. But you ask the, ask the owner, what, what's it? Well, I buy that because it's, it's the best sauce I've ever found. So does is, is that make sense? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, but I've seen in the last couple of months places like there's a place called St. Vito Focaccia in Nashville. And it's a, a guy who worked his way up through some really nice restaurants. And he's making a world-class focaccia that is either topped with sauce or not. Right. And I could see this focaccia being served in a slightly more upscale setting. It's not, it's, it's, you know, it's it be knife and fork. It's quite, it's quite high, right. a lot of open crumbs. So it's quite light in the middle. You know, you're talking, this is a $30 item. It's, it's basically an entree. He's putting good soup on it, though. He's using the best. He's, pro he's probably using the best that he can, in his mind, that he's, he oh, can possibly get. Absolutely using the yeah. best. I mean, but I'd like to see him serve it in a, a slightly nicer surrounding, I think. I think it can be the atmosphere as much as anything else. So, and, uh, and there's certainly always going to be a place for hand eating pizza with your hand, buying a slice on the street and all that. But I, but I actually think that as people, number one, back to Reiner's uh, definition of fine dining, it, it isn't churchy anymore. It's more casual, but it's still good ingredients. I think people want better quality everything. Yeah, for sure. Going back to Charlie Trotter just for a second, he, he was he was the man at the time, but now fine dining has a very, in my mind anyway, a very different definition. And it's more of an approach. It's still quality food served in quality ways, but it's much more approachable than it was going, eating at Charlie Trotter's, having an eight-course meal on asparagus. Eight courses of asparagus. Yeah. I, don't, I don't see that happening so much anymore. I mean, Alinea is now sort of taking the mantle in Chicago. Yep. And even before the pandemic, they were when they did the redesign, they, they got away. They got rid of the three and a half, four hour meal. It was more down to like three hours, two and a half, two forty five. People don't want to sit for more than three hours, and they yeah. certainly don't want to do that now. As we end of the pandemic, it's still an issue to sit inside for that long. But you're right; the service has gotten more casual. It's it's less formal. It's still refined and professional, yeah. but it's a lot more casual. Yep, I think it is. Everybody, we're going to take a break right now. We're with Steve Zielinski. Steve is, uh, by the way, Steve, I want to know about this. Uh, I saw you were quoted as a linchpin by Eater. Eater.com called you a linchpin in Chicago food media. Now, I, I immediately said, oh, my God, Steve Delinsky is a linchpin? That sounds like a compliment. But then I got to thinking, I said, maybe it's nonsense, Mike. I don't know how you feel about that. But you're definitely, you know, in Eater's eyes, you are a linchpin. So we'll be right back with the linchpin of Chicago food media in just a minute. This episode of Every Other Thursday is brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than nine years now, Tabletop Journal has been covering the food service and hospitality industry, all the while raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. If you haven't signed up for Tabletop Journal's bi-monthly newsletter, it's simple and easy, and it's free. Simply go to tabletopjournalnewsletter.com. Now, back to our podcast. Hi, folks. We're back with Steve Delinsky. We're very proud to have him here. He's a uh, media expert and has been focused for years and years on the uh, restaurant scene around the country and I guess around the world. I've, I've heard podcasts from Steve and from other countries, and he, he is truly an expert in the field. And we've been talking about pizza. And I just had a quick question for him about where pizza might be going in terms of toppings and flavors. 
guests are very fickle, becoming more sophisticated, becoming more traveled despite the pandemic. And I was wondering where, where what might be in the future. We, you know, looking backwards, you know, you had the uh, Hawaiian pizza with pineapple and ham, and then you had the, the Spago pizza and P- California Pizza Kitchen with smoked pheasant. So, wh- you know, Steve, where where do you see things going? Pizza is going square and rectangular, and also it's going a little bit higher and thicker. So, by that I mean we're going into the Detroit land. Detroit-style pizza has been around since 1946, but it is now sweeping the country because of Emmy Squared, which is a brand that started in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. They're now in Louisville, Nashville. I know the guy who's actually working on expanding the brand. They're going to be everywhere pretty soon. For people who don't know what Detroit-style pizza is, it's essentially a rectangular pie, focaccia-style dough, crispy edge kind of burnt cheese around the edge where the, the, the brick cheese is melted down between the pan and the dough on the side. The bottom is also quite firm and crispy. And then there's just a little bit of sauce scattered across the top. Another brand, well, you've probably heard of Jets is a national brand. That's also from Detroit, but that's kind of the fast food version. The other style of, of square or rectangular is Sicilian, which is huge on the East Coast, rarely seen in the Midwest, but we're seeing a lot more Sicilian style pizzas. Again, baked in a rectangular pan, a little bit higher, focaccia style. And then Roman, which is a style you don't see very often here. There's a handful of places in New York. There are a handful now in Chicago, places like Bonchi, Bar Cargo in Chicago. Roman is, well, there's a couple styles of Roman, but just really quickly, there's Roman Tavern, which is thin and crispy. But then the other two Romans are Roman Al Metro, which is by the meter. So it looks like a surfboard. And then Roman Altaglia, which is by the cut. So you'd look at it on a behind the deli case in a large rectangular pan and you tell them how much you want. They'll cut a, a width of the pizza for you. They'll weigh it. And then you pay by the pound. And so Bonchi is the most famous from Rome. They've opened up in Chicago as well as uh, New Orleans and Miami. So I think you're going to see squares and rectangles in terms of pizza in the next couple of years. Steve, one of the toughest rivers to navigate for suppliers to the pizza industry and the food service business in general is this whole issue of how do I get my brand story out there? How do I how do I tell my message and all that? And you're being uh, a media guy for a lot of years, and and you know it from just about every angle, from the actual on-air thing to uh, producing and doing editing and all that. And now, what you said in the first segment about starting your own media company, tell us a little bit about some of the things that you would bring to a potential sponsorship or a potential partner that might consider engaging you? What kinds of uh, opportunities would you give them? The, the first, I think the first, the most important thing is just my ability to tell a story. I think that's why you see a lot of journalists now quitting their jobs or starting, starting their own media companies because they're good storytellers and they know how to produce a story in a succinct manner. It doesn't require sort of a Ken Burns you know, ideology and two-hour length. A lot of these brands don't have a lot of time to tell their stories on social media. So I'm able to tell a story, condense the material pretty quickly, and boil it down to its essence to speak in plain language. I can also be the on-camera talent, which is pretty rare. Usually you find a production company, but then they've got to go hire the talent. I've also got the equipment. So I've finally invested uh, some serious money into a Canon 5D Mark IV camera, the Sennheiser microphones, the LED lights, what have you, so I can produce a, a pretty nice-looking product. And because of that, I've got companies now like Sub-Zero and Wolf, based in Madison, by the way, 
But a friend of mine... Go Badgers. That's right. But a friend of mine does all their distribution in Southeast Asia. And so they cannot bring their clients from Southeast Asia to the headquarters right now because of the pandemic. So I'm going to drive up to Madison and shoot some video, create some videos for them so they can show their clients what the mothership looks like, what the headquarters looks like. Here's how the product is used you know, by, by consumers and by chefs. So I that's kind of the, the advantage that I have a lot of people don't have is I can be the talent. I can also produce the story, do the editing, do the post-production. It's kind of a, you know, a turnkey operation for me. So a lot of your clients are obviously suppliers to the food service industry. Uh, do you have many clients that are actually operators at this point? I don't. I mean, yeah, this, this website that I just was partnering with Mercato I mean, they're a, a digital partner with small grocers. Uh-huh. And so I was going to the grocers and shooting video and creating videos based on what was there. But no, like in terms of restaurants hiring me, I haven't gone there yet. I mean, I've only been really a freelancer for about a month. Is that an opportunity for the industry? To, you know, for the operators? Yeah. Yeah, for, for sure. For, I mean, a restaurant could say, you know, we want to create a minute and a half video uh-huh. that shows the, the sort of the sexy food porn that we want to communicate online. Yeah, that would be helpful. I understand that you're sometimes being the face of the brand and all that, Steve, but you're not actually doing social media postings and all that. You're creating the themes and the storylines for the, the social media posts, I suspect. So you you do the content development probably more, much more than the actual execution of that content. Is that about right? That's about right. Yep. I mean, unless I'm being asked as a person, like as Steve Delinsky, the food reporter from Chicago, to create posts on my personal social media. That's a different one. That's the influence. Yes. But yes, otherwise it's just the main hats I'm wearing is content and curation and consulting. Those are kind of my three C's. So I'm creating content for people. I'm consulting with real estate firms right now to help them find chefs or restaurants to go into spaces. And I'm curating experiences for people where I can create a virtual experience like a pizza party cocktail party, or I can curate something in person where we do a walk along and I, you, I expose you to a couple different brands or, or restaurants in, in a city. In, in the tabletop category, which is what Greg mentioned earlier, is sort of where our DNA is based. We, I know that there are some people that are great at telling their stories, uh, have gotten great over the last few years, but there's still a lot of people in, in the food service space who are not great storytellers. They have this feeling, I've, I always think that if they have a great design or, or a great product, people will find their way to it. That's just not the case, is it? If I've got the best it's pizza not. oven in the world, and, and you know, people aren't going to just right. automatically find me. Right. Well, you would think that you know the story tells itself, but it doesn't. You really right. need, and this is why you know people would in the past hire ad agencies. Could you say that one more time? The story doesn't tell itself, right? The, the product yeah, the story doesn't tell, tell itself. You need to have yeah. professional yeah. storytellers, writers, and that's where a lot of journalists end up going into. You know, they they become communications experts liaisons between the the industry and between the brand. And so, yeah, that's that, that's what we're good at is telling these stories. You can have a, the greatest product in the world, but you do need somebody to put it in plain language for the consumer to explain what does this do? Like to, to, to borrow something from your world, so the tabletop world. So I love, and they're not a sponsor of mine, Le Creuset. Le Creuset has these amazing, what is the material called? It's really heavy gauge Enameled cast iron. Yeah. Enameled cast iron. That's it. And I use my enameled cast iron pot all the time and I can cook in it and I can serve in it. And I love that I don't have to transfer it. And it just makes the job of entertaining so much easier because, you know, it goes from stove to, to tabletop. And so 
that's something that, you know, how do you communicate that? You need somebody to help you communicate that message. I don't know if you know this, but Jay works for a company, a glassware company, and makes phenomenal glassware, some of the best glassware in the world, Stozel Glass. They've done a better job in the past couple of years of telling their story, too, on a global basis, too, and, and realizing that it isn't glassware that they're selling so much as it is the experience that people get as they drink the wines or, or you know cocktails or whatever from that glassware. And so uh, I think that storytelling and that, I hate to use the over trite, uh, overly used trite saying, the dining experience, but that, that whole experience thing really matters. Oh, for sure. People are, people are going to want experiences after all this is over, right? We're sick of picking food up and eating it out of to-go containers. We want an experience. Well, the thing, too, that I can see, just from listening to you, Steve, talk uh, about your life and where you come from and where you are today, I mean, Dave, you, can you see Steve working with some of our key customers telling their story? Because restaurateurs typically are not great storytellers, in my opinion. It's like, you know, stop on down. We have happy hour from four to six and uh, chicken wings are four ninety five. Uh, yeah, OK, it's great. Right. But but really to walk through, uh, you know, to walk through a fine dining restaurant and, and have the story told by somebody. The thing that impresses me, the, not the most about you, because that would be unfair. But what just listening to you, you're really believable. Uh, oh, you, you bring a lot of authenticity. Hey, you're really believable versus all the other guests. We couldn't believe any of the other guests. <laughs> no, 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 we can believe some. Of them. We believed all of them, but 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 what you did for all those years, telling the story, being a news guy. I mean, that's critical. Yeah, I never listen to a lot of food critics because some of them get too opinionated and they, they get they get full of themselves. But the way you tell the story, you say, boy, this gentleman knows what he's talking about. You got a tremendous amount of history behind you. Uh, if I owned a restaurant group, I could, and I'm not just saying this, I, I would, I would hire you on a skinny New York minute to tell my story. Hmm. Well, thank so you. So in, in, in the full month that you've been working on this uh, new project, Steve, how's the reaction been from the supplier community, whether it be ovens or whatever? I, I mean, has, has everybody said, oh, wow, I, I, I didn't realize I needed to tell my story. Is that part of that storytelling piece? Is that something that you have to, it's, it's, uh, have to convince people to do? You do. You still have to convince them. Yes. I mean, some people get it right away, but some people also realize, you know, maybe we're just not breaking through or we need to break through. And, you know, a lot of these conventions are on hold. You know, you can't yeah. really like the pizza expo we used to go to every year and you meet all these suppliers and you can't really do that right now. So that's a real, that's a big hurdle now for a lot of brands. They can't get sort of the tactile experience with the customer. And so that, that, that's been, I think, a hurdle for a lot of brands. I find it's, it's mixed. You know, some people get it right away. Some people, you have to really convince them. The thing is, I'm not really pushing it. I'm sort of, it's all happening organically right now for me and, and word of mouth because I just, I'm busy enough, really. When trade shows do come back, uh, and they will come back. But the one thing for them to be successful, I think they have to be much more interesting and not so product centric as much as, yeah, I mean, we're all there to see products and we're all there to sell products uh, and to meet you know, new customers and all that. But I also think there has to be a little bit of entertainment value, uh, some uh, storytelling uh, to use yep. your term, and a little bit sexier. And uh, and frankly, a lot of the shows that you go to uh, oftentimes are pretty boring. And, and some of the manufacturers who exhibit at those shows are even more boring. Yes. And in the tradition of Chicago improv, I will say yes. And yes, and. that is important. Yes. And you also need to solve a problem. And I'm borrowing now from my wife's deck of information. She's in sales and she is a master salesperson. And she says, you need to solve a problem for someone. You can't just say, here's what I'm selling. This is great. Buy it. It's how can I solve this problem for you? 
hopefully, and if, if I can't solve it for you, you're not going to hire me, but hopefully I can solve it for you. And by doing that, you're going to hire me to do this X for you. So I think that, yes, there needs to be entertainment. There needs to be some storytelling to sort of pull people in. But you, at the end of the day, you have to solve their problem. We talk about that all the time. You're, you're exactly right. Looking forward, you're in a very unique position, and especially with your background, looking at all these different foods around the world. Looking forward, I know it's hard because of the pandemic, but do you see anything beyond, beyond the area of pizza? But are there any themes or any new cuisines or any new styles that you see on the horizon, or is it too early to tell? Well, in the, in the short term, it's going to be all kinds of sandwiches. I have seen a lot of sandwich concepts open in Chicago in the last six months, whether it's multi-grain sourdough bread fed from an all-natural starter and baked in-house, or you know potato buns, housing, beautiful Nashville hot chicken sandwiches, or Japanese-inspired fried chicken thighs, or all kinds of sandwiches I've seen on the horizon because, they're again, they're approachable, they're affordable. They travel pretty well. They're less expensive than a, a commitment to a meal. And they just, you know, a lot of people are getting things to go right now. And so a sandwich can hold up pretty well in a, in, if it's packed properly. But I do think, you know, moving forward, you know, people are just desperate to go out and sit around a table with their friends and family. And so I don't think it really matters. I think it, you know, and I think people have saved money by not going out a lot and by not traveling. And so I think, not that we're going to be see a lot of high-end restaurants open, but I, I think people are gun-shy. I think restaurateurs are gun-shy about signing long leases, for sure. I think you'll probably see less expensive, more casual, more approachable food. And I'm hoping, deep down, the food reporter in me hopes that you will see more, more immigrant food come out to the, the forefront. Instead of just seeing burgers and fries and chicken sandwiches, you know, we're going to see rice dishes from the Middle East, and we'll see Asian noodle dishes. Yeah, and, it, and a real estate question for you, Steve, because I know you, know, you just mentioned that uh, a lot of openings and closing stuff, where a lot of restaurants have gone out, permanently gone away. Do you see uh, different types of restaurants coming in to fill those voids or other types of retail? Yes, there's been a, it'll be a calling of the herd, as we call okay. it. Okay. Uh, yeah. A lot of the people who are not well capitalized, who are not well run, they cannot manage the business anymore. They're out, but they've left all of the equipment They've left the black iron, so they've got exhaust. So a lot of restaurateurs could come in for a lot less money, you know, maybe do a $200,000 reno instead of a million two reno to do a place. And yes, I think you're going to see a second wave of restaurants come into the pre-existing spaces. Yeah, we talked about this for a while on, on uh, every other Thursday, and that this this pandemic is as terrible as it's been. It's been a, a like a sometimes like a, a forest fire that burns a lot of the dead wood, and and the the trees that survive and come up later on are even stronger than ever. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, it, it's a difficult time for people in a human sense to go through, but a, a culling of the herd is a, is a good way to put it. I think, guys. What other questions you have for Steve Delinsky? We we've got the the linchpin of uh, Chicago food media with us here today, and uh, I want to make sure that we we grill them good. The linchpin, not our word, actually. Uh, was it eater? Eater. 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 Yeah. Eater calls him the lynch. Now, now one of the things, Steve, I I, I do have a question for you on this media thing. And and you you do a lot of training of other people for media. So if you're going to train me on media, is there anything beyond what you've talked about with your own company that do you when you go into train people? What does that mean? Yeah, so it's it's very specific media training. And so up until when I left 
while I was at ABC, I could not train anybody in Chicago because I didn't oh, want to okay. be paid by people I'd be potentially covering. Uh, mm -hmm. But now that I'm no longer covering restaurants really for a local TV station, I can kind of train anybody. But in, in the past, I would say over the last 17, 18 years, I've been going out of town to places like Las Vegas, New York, Los Angeles, and working with the chef, the executive chef, the what's it, the ambassador for the brand, and teaching them how to do live television. So how do you do the local morning show? Because they all want to be on the Today Show and Good Morning America and Food Network. But you can't just jump into that without doing local TV first. So I get them exposed to, you know, how do you, it's really nuts and bolts. It's how to prepare for the appearance, how to plan your recipe, how to speak to the host, how to lead the segment, how to use your hands, direct the camera's attention, how to, you know, how to go into it so that you're not deer in the headlights. And so you're prepared to do a three to three minute and 30 second live demonstration. And so once they learn that and they get some practice, then they can have their marketing people or their spouses pitch them to the producers at Good Morning America and the Today Show. But you know, you, once you do those segments and you bomb, you're not going to get asked back. So you know, my thought is you, know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. So work all the kinks out on the Fox affiliate in Tulsa first and then pitch the, the, bigger, the bigger fish. And you were in, you did all that in Escanaba, was it? In the Quad Cities? Well, no. One, once I got to Chicago, I read an article in The New Yorker about Ming Tsai, who's a chef yeah. from uh, Wellesley, Massachusetts, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blue Ginger was the restaurant. And I read this article about him. This must have been in the late, mid-90s in The New Yorker profile. And he talks about getting media trained by this guy who passed away now, Lou Eckes. His, actually, his ex-wife... Lisa is still doing media training and he would, the chef would go to the house outside of Boston for a weekend and get trained in all this how-to stuff in television. And I, at the time I was a producer and a host for the good eating show at CLTV in Chicago. And I thought all the stuff he's talking about, I know this is all sort of boilerplate. I know all this stuff already. Why would I have a chef leave the restaurant for a weekend? Why not? You know, why don't I go to them and do the training on a Monday when they're typically off? And so that's how my business started. Wow. That's a, that's a great way to do that. Yeah. So like before the win Las Vegas opened, I trained a dozen chefs in New York City. Rosa Mexicano was one of my first clients I had uh, worked with the executive chef there. So, yeah, I mean, going and traveling to them, training on a Monday, spending all day with them. And then the deliverable at the end of the day is a video of them leading a cooking segment with me, the host, because I'd hire a local camera person to run the camera. I'm the I'm the anchor, the local morning anchor on the air with them. And there's a video of them leading a segment of three and a half minutes that we can then send to them on like a YouTube or a, a Vimeo. And they can send that video out to a prospective producer if they want to get booked on a TV show somewhere. Very cool. Very cool. Everybody, we're, we're with Steve Delinsky. We're getting uh, trained a little bit on media and what it is to be media savvy. And uh, Steve's new event. What's a, uh, do you have a name for your new uh, your new adventure? That's uh, that's now a whole month old. An address. An address. Well, I'd say my website is really the best. Steve Delinsky. Dot com with a, that's with a Y. All of my pizza stuff is pizzacityusa.com. And so we're restarting our tours in, in June, which is exciting. But, I mean, the company is Always Hungry Media. And so Always Hungry Media does consulting and does media training and does all these other experiences out there. The consulting with the real estate groups is all, all under my Always Hungry Media LLC. Well, this has been great. This has been very eye-opening. And I think our listeners, particularly the supplier side, are going to get a lot out of this. And hopefully uh, you'll get a lot of hits out of your uh, on your website, your new website. So. It, 
Great having you with us, Steve Delinsky, here today. Uh, appreciate all your time on a very busy schedule here. Anything else you guys have for Steve today? Oh, it was fantastic. Really enjoyed it, Steve. You, you're going to be so busy in the next couple of years. You, won't, you, you may be sorry you came on this show. You're going to get... Thank you. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the pizza show. Well, the NRA show, of course, is is a great show in Chicago as well. But that won't happen this year, and that may be a great blessing for you to give you a little bit of a run in. But you're gonna, I think, the whole world's gonna have a great 2022 NRA show in Chicago in McCormick. I think you're right. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. Really great having you. Thanks, guys. This episode of Every Other Thursday has been brought to you by TabletopJournal.com. For more than nine years, Tabletop Journal has been covering the global food service and hospitality industry, all the while raising the awareness of just how important Tabletop is to the overall guest dining experience. TabletopJournal.com, where we celebrate the products, the people, and the places, all in the world of hospitality tabletop. You can learn more about Every Other Thursday by visiting our website, everyotherthursdaypodcast.com. Thanks for joining us today for this episode of Every Other Thursday.